0: The Old Testament scripture comes from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the summer of heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. The New Testament reading comes from Second Corinthians 5, 14 through chapter 6, verse 2. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who has no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Even though it's called Second or Two Corinthians in our Bibles, there are multiple clues within this letter that it's not the second thing he ever wrote to the church of ancient Corinth. Paul started this Jesus community in Corinth some time ago on one of his missionary journeys. You can read the story in the book of Acts chapter 18. And after moving on, Paul got a report that things were not going well there. So he wrote the letter that we call 1st Corinthians to correct these problems. And it appears that many in the church rejected Paul's teaching in that letter and rebelled against his authority. And so we learn in this letter that Paul had followed up in person with what he calls the painful visit. And after that, he sent a letter which he says was written with anguish and tears. And so after all these measures, most, but not all of the Corinthians, realized their arrogance and they apologized to Paul. They wanted to reconcile. And so Paul wrote this letter to assure them of his love and commitment. The letter has been designed with three main sections, each addressing a distinct topic. So, Paul first finalizes his reconciliation with the Corinthians. Then in chapters 8 and 9, he addresses the topic of forgotten generosity. And in the final chapters, Paul challenges the remaining Corinthians who still reject him. Let's dive in and you'll see how it all works. So Paul opens up by thanking the God of all mercy and comfort who brought peace and encouragement to him and the Corinthians during this time of division and dispute. He acknowledges that things have been tense since this painful visit and he makes clear he's forgiven them. He wants an open and honest relationship. But why had they rejected Paul in the first place? Well, we discover later in this letter that the Corinthians had disregarded Paul as a leader. He was poor, he earned a meager living through manual labor, he was under constant persecution and suffering, he was often homeless, and to top it off, he wasn't a very impressive public speaker. And so once the Corinthians were exposed to other, more wealthy, impressive Christian leaders, they started to think less of Paul, they were actually ashamed of him. So Paul responds first by showing that their elevation of these leaders, simply because of their wealth and eloquence, is a betrayal of Jesus. It shows a totally distorted value system. True Christian leadership, Paul says, is not about status or self-promotion. Paul depicts himself and the other apostles as captive slaves to King Jesus, who is leading them on a procession of triumph. Paul's job isn't to be impressive, but rather to point people to the one who is. Jesus. He then alludes to the recent demand of the Corinthians that he provide some letters of recommendation to prove his authority and credentials, and this is ridiculous to Paul. Their church wouldn't even exist if he hadn't started it, and so he says they are his proof of genuine leadership. They are his letter of recommendation. He cleverly quotes from the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel saying that God's Spirit has written his letter of recommendation on their hearts as his new covenant people. The Corinthians shouldn't need need any more proof than that. Now the mention of the new covenant, it leads Paul into a long comparison between the old covenant between God and Israel that was mediated by Moses and the new covenant between God and the Corinthians mediated by Jesus and the Spirit. The old covenant made at Mount Sinai, it was truly glorious. It made Moses himself shine with God's glory, but that glory eventually faded. Not to mention the fact that the laws of that covenant were ineffective at truly transforming Israel. But the new covenant, by comparison, is even more glorious because the resurrected Jesus is the very glory of God and he lives on forever. And it is his spirit that is now transforming people to become more faithful just like Jesus himself. Now, this all sounds amazing. I mean, who doesn't want to share in God's own glory? But Paul goes on to show how the paradox of the cross turns upside down the Corinthians' ideas of glory and success. After all, Jesus' glorious exaltation as king took place through his suffering, execution, and death. On the cross, Jesus revealed God's salvation. He died for the sins of the world to reconcile people to God, but the cross does even more. It reveals God's character. He's a being of utter self-giving, suffering love that seeks the well-being of others. The cross also reveals a new cruciform way of life, and Paul's goal is that his life and ministry imitates the cross. So although his apostolic career has been marked by humility, suffering, by poverty, it was all to serve the Corinthians. And so when they disapprove of Paul's poverty and suffering, they disapprove of Jesus too. Paul's way of life and leadership is actually the proof that he authentically represents the crucified and risen Jesus. Paul really wants to reconcile with the Corinthians, but he won't let things lie until they've been transformed and embrace this upside-down paradox of the cross. After this passionate appeal, Paul moves on to address the topic of forgotten generosity. So, the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem, they had fallen into poverty due to a famine. And Paul was raising money among the new churches that he started, full of mostly non-Jews. They would all send a relief gift as a symbol of their unity in the Messiah Jesus. And so many of his churches, they were thrilled to give. But the Corinthians, in the midst of all this conflict with Paul, hadn't saved up for the gift. And for Paul, this isn't just about money. It's another sign that the Corinthians have not been transformed by the gospel about Jesus, which at its heart is a story of generosity. Paul says, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus the Messiah, that even though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. He's telling the story of the gospel through financial metaphors. Jesus gave up his glorious honor, or wealth, and he lowered himself to die like a poor slave, so that other people who are impoverished through sin and death can be exalted and become wealthy through the riches of God's grace. To be a Christian is to let this story sink deep into your mind and heart, letting it transform you into someone who is more generous, more willing to share your life and resources to help others. In the final section of the letter, Paul focuses on the main source of his conflict with the Corinthians, that group of impressive leaders that he sarcastically calls super-apostles. So they came to Corinth, promoting themselves and bad-mouthing Paul as a poor, unsuccessful leader. And at the risk of sounding self-promoting, Paul says, do these guys really want to compare credentials? he can totally take them on. Are they Jewish Bible experts? Well, so is Paul. He was a Pharisee, for goodness sakes. He has the whole Bible memorized. Do they want to brag about their superior knowledge of Jesus? Paul has actually seen and hung out with the risen Jesus. He's actually had visions of Jesus' heavenly throne room. But more importantly, Paul has given his entire life to the mission of Jesus. He sacrificed comfort and stability, and he never asked the Corinthians for money. Unlike the super apostles who charged lot, Paul earned his own living. But, Paul says, he refuses to brag about these accomplishments because these aren't the things that really matter as a Christian. Instead, what he'll brag about is how flawed and how weak he is because it's in those inadequacies that he discovers the love and mercy of Jesus. Or as Jesus once told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect through weakness. Paul concludes the letter with a sober warning to the Corinthians. They need to check themselves. Their contempt for Paul, his way of life, their love for these super apostles, it all shows that they don't grasp who Jesus is on a fundamental level. They are not living like transformed followers of Jesus and so he invites them, once again, to humble themselves before the love of Jesus. 2 Corinthians gives us a really unique window into the life of Paul and the paradox set before us by the cross of Jesus. The cross challenges our values, our ways of seeing the world. We value success, education, wealth, but God values humility and weakness because his love and power were made known through the suffering, death and the resurrection of Jesus. The cross also unleashes the transforming power and presence of the Spirit to empower Jesus' followers to take up his cruciform way of life and make it their own. And that's what 2 Corinthians is all about.
2: Good morning, Sherman Street. Uh, I am excited this morning because 2 Corinthians blew my mind this week. Uh, So I want to start by talking about the pronouns we and us. Uh, which sounds super exciting. Uh, So just please stick with me because it's important. Um, As you heard in the video, the better part of 2 Corinthians, almost all of it, is Paul defending himself, not because he wants the Corinthians to think he's such a good guy, but because he wants them to listen attentively to the gospel that he's preaching. The Corinthians have been listening to some other people who are teaching something other than the gospel. They are uh, the super apostles, as Paul calls them later in the book, And they're more flashy and eloquent. They seem to have more money. We don't really know the details of what's going on here because we're only peeking in uh, to a moment in their relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church. The letter is not addressed to us, right? We're just looking over their shoulders and learning what we can from them. And Paul uses the word we a lot in 2 Corinthians. And I tend to default when I read passages from the book to thinking that we means all believers. And if you pull passages from the book, like we do um, in sermons, right? Uh, or often in our own devotional reading, it is especially easy to get confused here. Sometimes, and sometimes uh, the we is all believers, but in second Corinthians, because Paul is defending his ministry more often than not, we and us is referring to Paul and Timothy. It's not about everybody. Um, like when in our passage, Paul says, for Christ's love compels us, or we are ambassadors of Christ. He's actually not first of all, talking about you and me in some nuanced way. I mean, in some nuanced way, you can extend it to us, but he's first of all talking about Paul and Timothy. They are ambassadors of Christ and they feel compelled to preach by Christ's love for the world. The point of the letter is for Paul and Timothy to justify their own preaching, to convince the Corinthians to listen to them. They're in the midst of a conflict with the church and the whole letter, apart from the place where they're fundraising for the church in Jerusalem, the whole letter is conflict resolution. Now that might sound like a boring nuance and like what difference does it make, but I would encourage you to go back and to read 2 Corinthians with that in mind to read through the entire letter all in one sitting. It's not that long, just 12 chapters. And to see what it changes, to think that that we is often Paul and Timothy and to watch for it. The text is so much richer than a bunch of religious platitudes or theologizing. And there's life in it. It's a real relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church. And it's worked out in the presence of God. It's like alive. Like when Paul says, we have these treasures in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Like, yes, you could apply that to all believers, right? Saying that we all carry the gospel in this seemingly precarious way, held in our frail and sometimes failing hands. Um, But the we in that passage is actually Paul and Timothy. And the point that they're trying to make is that they are not flashy like the super apostles for a reason their weaknesses their weaknesses stand out and they aren't worried about that because it brings more glory to God it's like they're saying our vulnerability is part of our message and the Corinthians have been trusting other spiritual teachers because they seem more confident more sure of themselves more wealthy seems at some parts like maybe it's because they charge money to speak and somehow that gives them more credibility I'm not sure entirely, but Paul is saying like, that's just not how this works. We aren't trying to be flashy or successful in the way that you understand it. That would detract from our message of Jesus Christ because the gospel is upside down. Timothy and I hold this treasure in jars of clay in order to show you that this power that we have is from God and not from us. vulnerability is central so then that makes sense of why paul says in verse 16 of our passage now we regard no one from a worldly point of view though we once regarded christ in that way we do so no longer again the we is paul and timothy paul is saying like look when i first heard of jesus a poor wandering teacher who hung out with sinners and tax collectors who got himself crucified, a form of punishment that shows that you are cursed by God. I thought it was terrible that anyone would follow such a clear abomination of our faith. But then the scales fell from my eyes quite literally and I saw what was true. That poor carpenter was God's own self. And the curse that he bore was actually mine. All of ours. His cross was the purest, most sacrificial act of love there is. And now I can't get away from it. Now it compels me to preach. Even through hardship and poverty and prison. And all my weaknesses testify to its strength. I used to measure people in the way you do until I looked at the cross and I saw the glory of God there until I met the resurrected Christ. Paul is arguing that his weakness is part of his preaching and that he preaches because he has been convinced that the gospel is actually good news for everyone. That he doesn't, he doesn't have ulterior motives. He's not trying to live up to the standards of the world's world. He is compelled by Christ's love for the world. He is moved by it. He believes that God's behavior towards us all is all but unbelievable in how incredibly gracious it is. And he just wants people to know. There are lots of ways that I'm different from Paul, uh, but this is one of the things that we have in common. I love the gospel. And every time I encounter it anew, like I did this week in my study, I'm blown away by it. And I feel like I am still only just skimming the surface of the grace of God. And I hope that the Lord will continue to lead me into the depths. The gospel that Paul is talking about is that God has done everything to make right what we made wrong. God was reconciling the world to to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Now, I want to stop here because that language can be a little bit off-putting, and sometimes people um, hear it in a really nasty way, like, God the child abuser tortured his son on the cross to appease his own anger which like if that's what you think it says that's uh it'd be good for you to be disgusted by that um I don't think that's what it says uh and I'll I will admit that I don't fully understand some of the ways that Paul talks about the cross I don't totally understand what it means that Christ became sin for us um but I do want to tell you how I understand the atonement and we're like I'm still learning. We're all still learning, and we'll be until we die. Uh, I, or hopefully after that, also. <laughs> um, I always come back to Saint Ignatius saying, "God is always greater than our conception of Him." Um, we're talking about a great mystery, and every metaphor that the Scripture uses to describe um, what happens on the cross is just that—it's a metaphor. It can point to us to some part of the truth, but not the whole thing. And if you stretch it too far, the metaphor will break. It's a mystery that we're grappling with. Um, So my guiding metaphor for the atonement, um, well, I think it's what we find in this passage. I understand our relationship with God in the way that I understand a human relationship and what happens when there is harm in that relationship. So like if somebody harms me, it does actually create a kind of debt Like, I don't mean that they owe me money, but they do kind of owe me something. If the relationship's ever gonna be whole again, something has to happen. And they can somehow repay the debt. We would say like, they can make it up to me, right? Like we have language for this. They can somehow repay the debt. They can replace what was broken or they can do something nice for me or whatever. Um, That's repaying the relational debt. Um, Sometimes it's a material debt uh, that causes the harm, like, they broke one of my things. Um, but I also, I have the option not to ask them to repay me, right? I can forgive. And if I do that, it will cost me something. If the harm is material, like they broke my bike, then to let go of it is to accept the loss of my bike. It costs me my bike. And sometimes that, sometimes that cost is less tangible. Often it's less tangible, but it's still there. Um, if, you think of, if you think of harm like a tangible object, I always imagine like a red ball. Um, somebody gives it to me, so they've done something, they've harmed me in some way. And by repaying the debt, they take it back. They own the harm and make it their own. Um, if I lash out, if I, you know, they give me the harm and I lash out at them, it's kind of like I threw the ball back at them. Um, but forgiveness asks me to hold it, right? To accept it, to choose to hold it without giving it back, even in subtle ways like bitterness and passive aggression. Those are still kind of like, you should have this. Um, in forgiveness, I choose that the pain would stay with me. And I'm, that's, I'm not saying anything about limits or boundaries. That's different. Um, you don't. Ha- that doesn't mean you have to go back into like an unsafe situation in order to forgive someone. But the pain that has already happened—that's the part that I say I will hold it. In some ways, I'm choosing to say, like, yes, that hurt, and I will let it hurt without giving it back to you. And without that acceptance of the hurt. Forgiveness does not happen. The Christian story says that God gave us everything, even life itself. And that we had a whole, truthful, intimate relationship, but that we humans turned our backs on it. And in the mechanics of God's good world, that broken relationship seeped into every other thing. Like it all started to break down so that what was once peaceful and whole became violent and distorted. And we feel the effects of that every day, Um, sometimes because of things we do, sometimes because of things others do to us, sometimes because we live just kind of in the context of this brokenness. Our sin has harmed us and it has harmed the world and it continues to do so. It has also harmed our relationship with God it's a betrayal and our sin harms also harms the things that God loves. Like we have broken a lot of God's stuff. And if the relationship is ever going to be made right, something has to happen. And God said repeatedly through history, I am determined to love. I will not walk away from this relationship. I will not let it remain fractured. I will not force you, but I will do everything to make it right but there's this relational debt that happens in any broken relationship and in this particular relationship because it is with god we are not able to make up for it right like what can we give god that god has not already given us plus we're not like really good at fixing things um i mean (laughs) consider how most people think that they're doing good things in the world. And the world is still such a destructive mess. Like apart from trying to heal a divine wound, we also just aren't good at making things right. And so God chooses to forgive. And that forgiveness is painful for God. And that's what we see in the cross. It is that movement of the heart worked out tangibly. And we can see what it cost God in Christ bears not just one wound, but the wounds of the whole world and says, I will keep the pain here in me. I will not throw it back at you. I will let it absorb. I will absorb it and let it die in me. God reconciled us to himself through Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And sometimes preachers want to say that the gospel is all about forgiveness. It is not. Forgiveness is central, vital. You do not get the gospel without forgiveness, but the real goal is reconciliation. Forgiveness is the road there. It is to be made right with God, and that is good news. Like in this passage, Paul is saying that the very idea that the God of the universe would choose the humiliation and suffering of the cross in order to heal our broken relationship is so outstanding that he cannot help but speak about it. And that's his gifting. He has been given the message of reconciliation. And then he goes ahead, like right in the next verse and enacts his ministry of reconciliation by saying to the Corinthians, I implore you, be reconciled to God. Like he's doing the very thing that he says he is compelled to do by the love of Christ. It's not do these 10 things and then you can be reconciled to God, but that God has already done everything necessary. There's nothing left to do but to receive the gift to let it transform you the cross has happened it's done you are already reconciled and you can see that play out in a relational way in the parable of the prodigal son um if you don't know that story you're gonna have to look it up because i'm already gonna go a little long so uh sorry to put that on you but um if the father in the parable of the prodigal son, if the father had not already done the work of forgiving his wayward son before the son came home, if he was still nursing his anger, still thinking about how much money the son took from him and wasted, if he, how he, you know, how he was raised better than that, and he should respect his father, if he had not already accepted the wound that his son had given him and let it sink into him, even though it hurt he would not have run out to meet his son. He would have been much more like the older brother, withholding and angry and passive aggressive maybe. But the father races to see his son and rejoices, no questions asked. A ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and a party in his honor. It was already his before he even got there. All he had to do was come home and receive the gift that the Father had ready for him. That is where we live. The work of forgiveness happened while we were still God's enemies. The gift waits for us and we receive it. Not just for the sake of forgiveness, right? Not so that we can keep wallowing in our sin, but so that we can be reconciled to God, so that we can celebrate and rejoice in a whole and intimate relationship, and that we might live in love, live in the revelry of the feast. Like that's it. That's grace. That's the gospel, and that's why we baptize babies in this church. And why kids could come to communion. Because grace is first of all the work of God. Before we even knew to look for it, let alone understood it. I mean, can we ever really grasp the mystery that we receive in those sacraments? I don't know. And besides, it's not about our understanding. It is about what God has done. And as we press into this love, as we begin to know it and receive it, we may, like Paul, find that we too have a calling, or in this passage, a compulsion. Like something that we can't help but do in response to the love of Christ. And it will probably, like Paul, be some kind of ministry of reconciliation. And Paul was an apostle. His call was to preach to the churches and to write letters and to call people to be reconciled with God. Like My calling, among some other things, is to preach here because the love of Christ compels me. What does Christ's love for the world compel you to do? The ministry of reconciliation is a big ministry. God is reconciling the world to God's self. All through scripture, we read that you cannot love God without also loving neighbor. And so the ministry of reconciliation includes loving neighbor and everything that is a part of that in fact actually that's part of the reconciliation that was effected on the cross Ephesians 2 tells us that the very same cross through which God reconciled us to God's self also made peace between the Jews and Gentiles it says that it reconciled both groups to God through the cross by which he, that's Jesus put to death our hostility and the cross reconciles us to our neighbors like even our enemies because it reconciles us all to god like we're united in this space we become one in jesus and we just need to figure out how to live that out and that's why i'm convinced that things like racial reconciliation are at the heart of the gospel because the cross reconciled us all to god And at that same moment, the cross also reconciled us to each other. Like anti-racism is not something other than the gospel. It is the gospel in action, lived out. That's why I'm also obsessed with us, like church people, our community, just working out our differences with each other. Wouldn't it be amazing if churches could be known as places of reconciliation? That even people who aren't part of our community knew that if they had a fight that they couldn't figure out they could just go to the church because someone there would help them not in a way that would moralize them to death not in a way that would coerce them into being something that they're not but in a way that would honor them as god's creatures as bearers of god's image and just help them to make things right because that's the work that god is doing in the world And the gospel stretches even farther than that, right? Romans tells us that the whole of creation is waiting for the people of God to be revealed so that it too can heal. In Genesis, before the fall, our very first calling was to take care of the earth. And wouldn't it be right that our healing would return us then to our first vocation? God is reconciling the world to God's self. And the end of this reconciliation is a wholeness in our relationships with God, with each other, within ourselves, and also with the rest of creation. The gospel includes everything. Everything. The kingdom of God has come near. And it is a healing force. And by the Holy Spirit, it lives in you. Even your weaknesses are a part of it. What does Christ's love for the world compel you to do? Maybe uh, it's counseling or teaching or gardening or caring for children or science or speaking truth in art or being a nurse or designing beautiful and functional spaces or being president. May gave me that last one. (laughs) Uh, In all these things, we are only participating or living into what God has already done. Christ's work is complete. All the work of reconciliation is already done. You only have to receive it. And any measure of reconciliation with others, with the land, within ourselves, it's only revealing What's already there, clearing away the dust and bringing to light the peace that already is, because God is making all things new. Because in the cross, Christ was reconciling the world to himself. Now is the time of God's favor and now is the day of God's salvation. Let's hear Paul's call and be reconciled to God. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, I um, am just so grateful for you, Um, and for um, your willingness to submit yourself to servanthood and to the cross to put yourself low that you might lift us up and Lord I pray that you would make us all um Ministers of Reconciliation in whatever form that takes that we would all be so moved by your love that we might um, just have to work in the direction that you are working. Lord, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.